You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. My name is Nicole Feldman, and today we welcome Barry Riley to talk about his new book, The Political History of American Food Aid, An Uneasy Benevolence. Barry's a visiting scholar at FSI's Center on Food Security and the Environment. Previously, he worked with the U.S. Agency for International Development and coordinated the response to Kenya's drought of the century in 1983. So, Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. Nicole, thank you very much for having me. So we're here today to talk about food aid, which is something I imagine most Americans don't know a ton about. So first, tell us how food aid works in the U.S. Yes, okay. I think it's easiest for me to talk about it the way I do in the book, because it can get very complicated if you don't do that. I define food aid in the book as the United States government purchasing food mostly on the U.S. economy to send to the citizens of residents of countries overseas that are suffering from food deficits of some sort, usually tending toward hunger, maybe even famine, and sadly sometimes to death. We also have provided in, in history food aid for other reasons, and I think we can get into those later if you'd like, but something like 85% of present-day food aid is for emergency purposes. It consists of bags of grain, of cartons of vegetable oil, of fortified and easily digestible foods for infants or half-starved people or mothers. And we've been doing it in one way or another since 1812. So it's a long-lasting program. So, you know, as as a taxpayer... Uh we're essentially paying for this program. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact and you know, why, why it's worth it to me to have my tax dollars going overseas? I think the majority of Americans who are aware of food aid feel it's our way of being benevolent. Uh, when you see somebody who is very hungry, there is a tendency for you to want to stop and maybe add a few dollars to that person's cup on the road. Uh, it starts with that. And it starts all the way from the beginning. The first instance in 1894 was a reaction to the people of the state of Maryland feeling that empathy for French citizens from the island of Haiti who had been ousted by a slave revolt and had landed on the shores of Maryland and Baltimore penniless and very hungry. The residents wanted to feed them. They felt this great empathy, this feeling of sympathy. Uh, Three of their representatives later proceeded to go to the then-national capital in Philadelphia, requesting that the U.S. government reimburse them for these costs. And that is the very first instance when the issues of whether it's a role for the United States government to do that first came came into into the light of history. Yeah, so I think that's a a great segue into talking about your book, which is why we're really here today. So you mentioned early on how James Madison really was the person to shape American food aid policy. Uh, You mentioned a quote that describes his policy rather poignantly. I thought he could not undertake to lay a finger on that article in the federal constitution, which granted a right to Congress of expending on objects of benevolence the money of their constituents. So I think I think essentially he was saying that Congress 
didn't have the power to use to U.S. tax dollars to send aid abroad, which I think sounds like an argument we might still hear today. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, how that shaped American we, we policy? We do hear that argument today. I totally agree with you. What Madison was doing, and at the time he was a representative from the state of Virginia, 43 years old, he also happened to be one of the principal drafters of the Constitution. So he kind of knew what he was talking about. And what he was saying is Congress can do nothing that the Constitution doesn't grant them the authority to do. And he couldn't find that authority in the Constitution. He, like everybody else in the chamber, felt personal sympathy for the plight of the French refugees, but he couldn't see how it could be done under the Constitution. What's of interest and remains of interest today, and is the reason for the subtitle of that book, An Uneasy Benevolence, is that everyone in the chamber felt personal sympathy. And they sent that bill away to committee for three weeks and then came back to vote on it. And they overruled him. Basically, they said, we agree that that's the law, and, and you're perfectly right. But is this to be the way that the American country is going to be governed? Are we not to be governed by Christian principles, by the feeling of, of empathy toward these people? Can we not be benevolent? And they decided they could be, even though it really wasn't allowed them uh, in the Constitution. To add one additional point to that, 12 years later, 16 years later, when Madison himself is president, the very first instance of American food aid of any sort to a foreign country, 1812, earthquake in Venezuela, the Congress decides they've got to send $50,000 in barrels of, that was a lot of wheat in those days, on sailing ships to Venezuela. Madison is president. He signed it in the same day. He didn't quibble with it. That, however, was about the only instance of overruling his constitutional view until 1914, until World War One. So even though he was overruled that one time, it went on uh, in that sense. Right through the, place, the Irish potato um, famine, a million Irishmen died. We provided no government-financed food at that time. So, Yeah. Well, I, I think that brings us... Um, to the next point in your book um, where you talk about how American food aid can really get going until World War I when H Herbert Hoover actually uh, was the person to kind of make it happen. So how did he open the door for aid from the U.S.? Um, the son of Stanford, who is generally regarded around here as sadly the president who kind of let us down during the Great Depression, he made his fame in the early days, in the period 1914 to 1923, by taking charge of an effort, initially a private effort, eventually a government-financed effort, to feed the hungry of Belgium and northern France after they had been invaded by the German army, that German army not willing to provide them food, forcing them to go out in the rest of the world to try to get it as best they could. Hoover at the time, age 40, was already a self-made millionaire, a mining uh, graduate of the mining school here at Stanford, who had made his fortune in China, Australia, and elsewhere uh, in the practice of mining and managing mines. He happened to be in London. The American ambassador had a good sense of his, his skills, his ability to organize asked him if he wouldn't mind spending a few months trying to figure out how to get food to the starving Belgians. He said, yeah, I'll be happy to do that. 
And he proceeded to generate a, an organization called the Commission for Relief, a Belgian private organization. Telephone, not telephone, but telegraphed and wrote letters to friends all over the world, many of whom were right here at Stanford, including the president of the university, saying, get on your high horses, get out there, get money, buy food, ship it to our new office in New York that I'm about to establish, and they'll ship it on to Rotterdam, and we'll figure out how to get it to Belgium. It was an amazing success, and he did that uh, by the middle of uh, 1915, the next year. It was a $400 million operation. Most of the food that he got through that private organization turned out to be valued about 5% of the total need. But he managed to get the French government, the British government, the Belgian government from funds held overseas to finance most of that purchase of food. He finagled the, the shipping companies to provide it nearly free of charge, the stevedoring unions to be willing to work for nothing. Letters and cables going out to all organizations, to mayors, governors, uh, heads of companies to generate a lot of food that was put on ships and shipped to Belgium. Um, something he had never done before. He, had, he knew nothing about it. He was just a tremendous organization man, and he did it with unpaid volunteers. That carried right up through the beginning of the U.S. involvement in the war in 1917. He then expanded his role, not only food for the starving Belgians, but food for most of Europe that were short of food because of the war, and they'd subtracted farmers for the war effort. He got American farmers to increase production dramatically. Mostly, he got American consumers to be willing to eat less. Wheatless Wednesdays, um, children singing the, singing the virtues of the patriotic potatoes so they could switch to potatoes rather than wheat, uh, less meat, less sugar, smaller coffees, no, no coffee breaks, all geared to getting Americans on board with the idea of we've got to give up something to keep these starving Belgians alive. A fantastic business. I actually consider him the father of American food aid. Yeah, that's that's definitely sounds very impressive. It's very hard to imagine Americans giving up anything today. <laughs> Sadly, I think you're right. <laughs> so, um, but then you you do talk about how food aid, more as we know it today, didn't really get going until after World War II, um, after President Truman and consulting with former President Hoover uh, started to talk about fuller bellies as a way to combat communism. And you write about how he said in a radio address, America cannot remain healthy and happy in the same world where millions of human beings are starving. A sound world order can never be built upon a foundation of human misery. So that, to me, sounds a little more like the food aid we think of today. Um, how did the actions following World War II shape that policy? Very quickly, after World War I, there was the concern about the expansion of Bolshevism in Europe and the food that we provided after the war, right through the 20s, actually, was in part a response to help those nations be sufficiently um, less hungry uh, to be able to foist off those that were trying to use hunger as a way to spread the ideas of Bolshevism and communism. The same was very true and in an expanded way after World War II. Truman was made very aware early on about the threat to Greece and Turkey, and he announced something called the Truman Doctrine, which was to provide military and other supporting assistance to prevent Greece and Turkey from falling into the communist uh, bailiwick. But he also provided food, and each time he needed money for this, he had to go to a very hostile Congress 
Truman was a Democrat. His, his uh, ratings among the people of the United States, his popularity was something about like Trump's today, around the 32, 33%. So it was hard for him to get the support. Uh, $350 million for food for certain countries in Europe, $400 million for Greece and Turkey, to go back again for more food aid. And finally, the development of the Marshall Plan in 1948, all geared to strengthening Europe against this presumed tide of communist possible uh, uh, movements, uh, either either through um, guerrilla organizations like Turkey or through votes in France and Italy. Um, and he went to Congress made a strong case and got approval from Congress to provide this food using the bogeyman of communist takeovers. And it worked. worked pretty pretty doggone. Yeah. So then what happened next? Um, I'm going to ask you to sum up the next 50 minutes. Or, sorry, uh, I'm going to ask you to sum up the next 50 years in about three minutes. So how did we move from there to the end of the Cold War? Hard question to answer because... I have a very long book to provide the answer to that question because I couldn't figure out how to fit it into a very short book because we have domestic agriculture policy at work. We have fear of communist aggression at work. We have the many in Congress saying, I'm not spending any more money for that. We're trying to reduce uh, government expenditures, not increase them. But we had also a situation where the American farm community was losing money. Uh, after the Korean War in 1953, uh, the price of wheat in the, our domestic markets uh, went down by half and then some. Government under the older Roosevelt programs to prevent farmers from going bankrupt had been accumulating huge stores of food. We had enormous surpluses of food that developed in the early 1950s, so much so that government was having great difficulty paying for them, even finding storage sufficient for them. They were looking for ways to get rid of it overseas. So then after the Cold War was over, how did U.S. food aid change at that point? Well, the food aid legislation comes under the Truman administration, the so-called PL-480. Anybody that knows American food aid knows that's the governing legislation, in part to this day. The point of PL-480 was, as its critics suggest, very much a program to get rid of domestic surpluses. It was not necessarily intended to help starving people overseas. What we did was to, pay, to um, sell it for local currencies of these countries rather than for dollars, which meant there were a lot more customers, and then to use those local currencies that were deposited in bank accounts to turn them into soft loans back to those countries that could be used for development projects or for lending to American companies that wanted to invest in, in those countries. Other food aid exporters cried foul because they were exporting for hard currencies. And the idea of getting rid of domestic U.S. surpluses by selling them for local currencies, for soft currencies, seemed to them to be unfair. As that legislation was being written, uh, the two congressional leaders, one from the Senate, one from the House, got together and said, what if we added a segment to this which was intended to feed the hungry, to provide food not for local currencies but for free? We have been... Um, We've had representatives from the U.S. private voluntary organizations appearing before our committees saying that they could use food for their ongoing uh, 
hunger programs or their local development programs, and why don't we add that also to the legislation? And they did so. And that addition, which is called Title II of the legislation, is now the centerpiece of what we have today in our food aid programs. The old sales for local currency died out uh, about 10 years ago. We don't do that anymore. But we kept that Title II part. So that's kind of in quick succession, summarizing maybe 200 pages of this book. <laughs> we appreciate appreciate the summary. Yeah. So you talk about how critics in the book uh, say that American food aid programs are inefficient, how they can mess with prices for producers and the countries we're trying to help, and how it's hard to determine who needs the aid most and whether it's really making a difference. So what changes would you like to see in the U.S.? Um, what could we do to improve these systems? First, let's talk about those critics. Uh, I have a large section in the book about the critics because I wanted to get their criticisms right. Basically, what they're saying is that it's inefficient in the sense that we could do the same thing cheaper by using straight dollars rather than shipping food aid from the American Middle West on American carriers where it may or may not arrive in time in sub-Saharan Africa. They're probably right in that. The issue there, however, is that there's a heck of a lot more congressional support for that kind of tied food aid. It's called tied if it comes from our country, as opposed to purchasing it closer to where it's needed. The supporters in Congress and the agricultural organizations that are in support and the shippers and the are a strong voice in Congress, and it's easier to get food aid the traditional way, having food shipped from Kansas all the way to Central African Republic. What the economists would like to see is using dollars to buy the food in East Africa or South Africa or somewhere close to where it's often needed because it costs a lot less, and with the same budget, you can help a lot more people. They are right in that. It's just harder to get dollars to do that. What has happened just in the past year, Congress for the first time was willing to, in effect, split food aid into two components. The traditional food aid that much of my book talks about coming from the U.S. as commodities continues. But the, the other form of food aid is to use dollars rather than commodities to buy the food in those foreign countries. And not only to buy food commodities, but where possible to give particularly refugees and displaced persons credit cards or debit cards or other means of being able to purchase it in the locations where they are refugees if there's a market there where they could use it. That's an even less expensive way. And they're then able to purchase the kinds of food that they like. Clearly, the um, critics of food aid much prefer the latter, which they term food assistance as opposed to food aid, or assistance for food, which is a more accurate thing. It's just harder to get Congress to approve those dollars. We had it done this past year. We also have a present administration that has tried to zero out in the 2018 budget not only the commodity food aid, but subtracting a huge amount from the dollar budget that would buy that that food locally, which isn't a bad thing to do if the numbers of people who are hungry happen to be going down. But that's not the case at all. We have 64 million refugees and displaced persons in the world right now, the highest number since World War II. And they can't work where they are. They're in refugee camps. 
They need to be provided food. Food doesn't have to come from Kansas. It can come from local uh, uh, farmers. And right now, we have both. And it's working, I think, pretty well. But what the Trump budget would do to that is, is what scares me about the near-term future. It's a little unclear how Congress is going to react to that. The early reactions are they oppose it and they want to continue food aid as it has been. The real issues will be as they always have been in the past, the dollars, the approval of dollars, the appropriations committee, uh, which is the real bit noir in all of this. Sure. So so I know it's hard to really say what's going to happen uh, at any point, but particularly under the current administration. But if you were going to try to predict, what do you think will happen? <laughs> well, my, my book comes out in a couple of weeks, and I've asked the publisher to send a whole bunch of copies of it to Congress, particularly those on the Senate side that I know are supportive of a more efficient food aid program. Whether they have time to read it, I have no idea. Maybe there's that. We'll look That's at That's what it. lackeys are for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm worried about the future, and maybe you were going to ask me that in a minute, but let's get on to that. 50 or 60 or 100 years from now, I think that uh, huge numbers of people, particularly uh, close to the tropics, are going to have a much greater time in trying to either grow or earn the money to buy sufficient food. Uh, global warming is a fact. Uh, one of the things that global warming does as the daily average temperatures in the growing seasons of countries around the tropics, and in, in India particularly, yields begin to go down at a certain point, uh, about 95 degrees daily uh, Fahrenheit average temperature for maize begins a situation where maize yields will drop off rather dramatically. Same is true for corn. Less true for rice because rice is more irrigated. But we're talking potential yield decreases of 30, 40, 50%. And in countries where 80% of a household budget is spent on food, if those yields go down, the amount of food available goes up and prices will go up, and they'll go up rather dramatically. And while the U.S. might be producing enough, or Canada or Russia, the likely big producer of, of wheat under these new uh, climate situations, the price of it is going to be high, and the price of it in these countries where there are lots of food insecure people these days is going to be high. Whether that happens in 20 years or 50, I'm almost certain it's going to happen. And the real question, and the question for my next book, is how are we going to prepare ourselves for that potential eventuality? Yeah, so speaking a little bit more on that, do so it seems like under those circumstances, the total amount of food produced, you know, over the in the entire world is is probably going down. Is that correct? Actually, right now uh, it's pretty good. Oh, okay. uh, I think we've got uh, nearly all time high global carryover stocks right now. Oh, okay, I, it, sorry, it, I I meant um, you know once the climate has changed, you know, a, a bit more going forward, is will that still be the case? Uh, the the problems will be largely in the countries least able to deal with those problems. Um, Egypt might be a good example in that Egypt produces a fair amount of its own wheat. The Nor North Africa produces a fair amount, and various softweeds are produced in various parts of Africa. North India produces a number of high-quality wheats. In every one of those cases, if the present trend in 
average daily growing temperatures in, in the growing season continues on the same path as they've been on the past 10 or 15 years, the yields are going to turn down. And when you also factor in the likely less lowered availability of water for irrigation caused by a number of reasons, then you have alarm bells beginning to sound or distant thunder. <laughs> and I worry that by the time we get around to worrying about it, it could possibly be too late. The analogy, which is one of my favorite analogies, is Lester Brown, who is a famous person in this business, once wrote a book called The 29th Day. And it's about a pond that has uh, lily pads growing in it. And these lily pads expand, they double every day, fast growing things. And in 30 days, one happens to know the pond will be full. Well, how full is the pond on the 29th day? It's only half full. There still seems to be time to deal with the problem. They think, they, well, it took 29 days to get here. We've got a few. They don't. They have one more day. And that's the kind of problem that worries me. So I think that brings us to the all-important question. What can we do to help? Um, if our listeners either want to be able to give aid to countries in need or help to maintain America's food aid programs, um, what can they actually do to help? I think... Um, Read my book, of course. Of course, of yeah, course. That goes without saying. <laughs> uh, if they become more aware of the reality of American foreign aid, of which food aid is a part, uh, the average response by Americans to the question, what percentage of our GDP do we spend on foreign aid? The average answer is 26% in the latest opinion polls that I've seen. The real answer is... Even if you, include, if you include military aid and aid to Israel and Iraq and Afghanistan, that's 1.3 to 1.7%. If you exclude the military and just talk about development aid, economic aid, it's 0.7 of 1%. And if you just talk about food aid, it's about half of that. So if you're spending $100 on food aid, we're talking about 3 or 4 cents, um, $100 of, uh, on, uh, of national expenditures. We're talking about three or four cents spent on economic development aid or three or four cents spent on food aid. It's very tiny, and it could easily go up without harming anybody. Um, these are not um, economy-breaking numbers to talk about. The American farming community has traditionally been in favor of food aid because they, they sell some of it, a lot of it, probably less in favor of buying it overseas where the taxpayers ought to ought to uh, have a voice because it's a lot cheaper for us to buy the same amount of food overseas or with the same a budget, pr buy more food to help more people. I think they ought to be aware of the reality, the dimensions of that problem. Two, there is a humanitarian instinct in America. You see it, I can see it everywhere. The, the response right now to the damage that the hurricanes have, have caused in uh, Texas and Florida but even in St. Martin's, an island in the Caribbean, totally devastated, that is, as of this morning, suffering riots of people who can't find food anywhere on their island. There are 77,000 people on St. Martin's. The World Food Program is flying themselves in as we speak to begin to provide. Food is on its way to support the World Food Program. And they have an outreach, of, which you can get hold of on the Internet on their, on their, at their website, is a very good thing to do. They're an excellent organization. In my mind, the best technical UN organization we have. 
They're very good at this business. Even our American money that flows for emergencies, by and large, flows through the world programs. Support to them directly is a good idea. All right. Well, Barry, I hope that all of the congressmen decide to read your book. And And they tell their friends. Yes. And tell your friends. (laughs) Tweet about it. Then Trump might hear about it. Um, So again, the title of that book is The Political History of American Food Aid, An Uneasy Benevolence. And it will be available for purchase starting September 22nd. Barry Riley, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.